So welcome back. It's been a pretty good-sized break from Sunday school. We took the summer off, but now here we are. We're back. And if you guys remember, we wrapped up the Book of Romans. Um, and I don't know if, what, what you think of or what you define as an overview or a survey, but I feel like nothing I've done so far has been an overview and a survey. We've just been kind of going lightly through a book that we could go through heavier than we have been. Um, but if you guys remember, one of my practices was to do book recommendations. I'm going to hold something up that you may or may not get for yourself. I don't know. But I wanted to show you, if nothing else, it's a novelty. It's something that's interesting. And it dovetails with the actual, uh, with the actual lesson this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I have a commentary here. In fact, I've got, I think, all the set that has been produced so far on my computer. And I also have, physically, I have a copy of this for the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's called the Reformation Commentary on Scripture. And so what it is, is this. If you, if you open it up and you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it's going to give basically an, an outline of 1 Corinthians 4. It's going to give you the wording. It's going to print everything. But then underneath of it, it's going to have different Reformed commentators from the Reformation period commenting on this text. So you'll get a little bit of Martin Luther. You'll get yourselves a little John Calvin. You'll get a lot of John Calvin in this. Uh, you'll get yourselves some Johannes Spannenberg, right? So if you've never heard of that guy, you learn, you learn some guys that you actually really enjoy. So I have found people that I enjoyed, that I appreciated, that I never knew until I got this Reformation commentary on Scripture. Because a lot of times, they're more obscure, these are the kind of guys that maybe you're not buying their books, right? Somebody might buy Calvin's little book on the Christian life, but um, how many people know who John Collette is? I don't know who John Collette is. So you go to the very back, and it'll have a section on John Collette. It'll give you a little bit of a biography of the man, tell you a little about him, and then you learn a little bit. And the interesting thing is it's a little bit of a smorgasbord. When you go to 1 Corinthians 11, you're going to have... People that think very different things about the same text. And it's interesting to hear their rationale, their thoughts, and it's helpful. So I'm just going to pass this around and let you look at it. What does a commentary written by like 200 different people look like? Well, that's what this is. This is a commentary by committee. It's, it's perfect. Um, but I, I consult it quite a bit. In fact, if you guys remember, one thing we changed in the order of service, we'd, we have now the larger catechism in the back. But you may remember this, that we would also have um, our New Testament and Old Testament reading. I would try to always include somebody from church history and them talking about the text. So I actually have an ancient Christian commentary on scripture on every book of the Bible, very much like this. But it's the ancient Christian commentary. So you get um, uh, not the reformers, but the, the church fathers. And commentaries from them on all these different texts that are sometimes, sometimes you can find a text where there are a lot of comments on it. And then some, you go, huh, I wonder why no one talked about this passage in the very middle of Job, you know, and not very many comments on it. So it's hit or miss. But anyway, I have loved it. I've really benefited from it. It is nice to have voices other than just those written in the last 20 years giving you input on how to think about what you have in front of you when you're talking about the text. So... If you're ever interested and you're going through a book of the Bible and you think, I wonder what these some other people think besides the brand new writers today, 
uh, take a look at that series because I, I love it and I use it. I don't think it's just for preachers. I think anybody in the church could actually benefit from it. But um, I'm weird, though. I would buy commentaries if I was a pastor or not. So, yeah. Yeah. But this morning, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians. We are working our way through the New Testament. We've, done, we've already done our Old Testament survey. We've looked at the books of the Old Testament, and we've looked at the Gospels. We've looked at the, the book of Acts, and we got to Romans, and now here we are at 1 Corinthians. Um, let's talk about the authorship of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote it. There we go. That was very simple. Um, it says at the very beginning, the first word of the letter is Paul. So he identifies himself. No, no mystery there. Um, what's the occasion? Well, Paul is in the, book, in, in the city of Ephesus sometime in the spring. We don't know exactly the date. It could be AD 53 or 54 or 55. Um, those are the times when he would have been in Ephesus. Uh, and it would have been near the end of his time in Ephesus during the third missionary journey. Um, if you remember, he's in Ephesus for several years. I think Ephesus probably gets more attention from Paul than any other location in his missionary journeys. Um, the book of 2 Corinthians is written from Macedonia, maybe a year or two after that. Um, and it's written a year before Romans is written in Corinth. So just in terms of timeline-wise, you see we, we're actually... there. The canon is not in the chronological order. So the books are all out of place from one another. You're not just getting one book after the other in terms of the timeline. Um, so let's talk about Corinth. Corinth is a city in Greece. Paul first preached the gospel in Corinth during his second missionary, missionary journey. So if you read the book of Acts and you get to chapter 18, um, he's supporting himself there in the city of Corinth by making tents. Remember, this is a wealthy city. This is a city that is filled with idolatry. They have uh, cult prostitutes. They have temples dedicated to the Greek gods there. Um, this is a, what's the word I want to use? This is an indulgent city. This is a city where if you want it, you can have it. It's like the Las Vegas of the Greek world. And Paul is staying there and he's taking care of himself. He doesn't want to be dependent on anybody and he doesn't want anybody thinking that he has some other motive for preaching other than preaching. And so he makes sure to support himself through the work of tent making. Um, when Paul gets there, he preaches to who first? He preaches to the Jews first. He always makes sure every time he goes to a new city that he preaches to the Jews. He gives them an opportunity to hear the gospel. He is inevitably rejected by the Jews, at least most of them. And then he goes to the Gentiles. And when he goes to the Gentiles, he has a very fruitful ministry in Corinth. Pagans are converted. Uh, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his whole family are converted. So, um, you know... When you think of Paul, sometimes we think of his rejection, but he also met with a great deal of success in his preaching as well. And you see that in Corinth. He stays in Corinth for about a year and a half, establishing the church, uh, clarifying the gospel. And then what does he do? He moves on. He has to keep going. Uh, he stays in touch with the Corinthians, though, even after he leaves. Um, others come there after Paul preaches. One of the people who comes after Paul is Famous person from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. Does anyone remember the other preacher who followed Paul? Apollos. All right. Apollos is another person who preaches. Um, 
provides background for what happens later on. During the time uh, after his absence, problems arise. They necessitate the writing of 1 Corinthians. So Paul leaves, but that does not mean that the church is in great shape. Uh, I think Paul ideally would love for the church to be in great shape. But instead, he finds out that a bunch of sinful human beings occupy this church. And that requires the occasion of the writing of this letter. And so one of the things we talk about sometimes when we talk about uh, New Testament letters is that it is something we call, it's an occasional letter. Uh, It's an occasional letter. So that means there's an occasion for it to be written. There is something going on that he needs to address. And so the the letter is is addressed to to deal with that. Um, He's addressing serious problems in the church in Corinth. And we'll talk about a few of those problems. We'll talk about the way that Paul addresses a few of those. Um, But just know this isn't comprehensive. The problems run very, very deep here. So first of all, in the first four chapters, Paul addresses this issue of division in the church, right? There have been quarrels in the church. People are arguing with, with each other. And does anyone, if you remember the first four chapters of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, does anyone remember the thing that people would say? The, people, the thing that people would say, especially related to Paul and the guy that came after him. I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos. Yeah, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. And Paul is really, really frustrated that he's got people wearing his t-shirts in Corinth, right? Like, he's like, why? He's like, I didn't. He goes, he goes at length. He, you know, it's, it's four chapters of him basically being like, what is wrong with your brains? Um, he's like, I didn't baptize. He's like, I didn't baptize any of you. He's like, I'm really glad I didn't baptize any of you. And then I love it in the middle of it. He's like, oh yeah, I did baptize that one guy and his family. But I, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else, he says in the letter. I just love the, I will say if I was the, if I was the guy writing and I was the, they call it an amanuensis. He's writing through an amanuensis, the person that's writing. And you can just see him walking and talking and I could just see him like pacing and telling this guy to write this stuff down. And then the guy's like, you sure you want me to write all this? You could just figure it out and then I can write it. But he doesn't do that. Um, he says, I baptize none of you except Crispus and, and Gaius. He said, I baptize the household of Stephanus. And then he said, but and then he goes and then he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's like he's saying, I'm not even keeping track of everybody that I baptized because it doesn't matter who baptized you. And it doesn't matter who I baptize. He's, he's basically like, all that matters is Christ sent me to preach the gospel. And he sent me not to preach with words of eloquent wisdom. And he really spends time highlighting the fact that he didn't use eloquent wisdom when he preached. And I think this gets at what he thinks is the deep down core problem with all these divisions in the church. He is, he is sure that if the Christians in Corinth understand the gospel, that they won't get excited about their preacher. They're going to get excited about the message. Not, don't get excited about the preacher. Get excited about the message. Paul says, I'm not eloquent. Now, I don't think that means that Paul was a bad preacher. I don't think that means that, that Paul uh, was... You know, sometimes we might be tempted to think, oh, Paul thinks he's a bad preacher. I think Paul is saying, I spoke simple words and I preached simple sermons. I think that's what he's saying. I didn't use fancy linguistics tricks or anything like that. He's like, I was a plain preacher. I came to you and I just said what needed to be said. 
And then he talks about why he preaches like that. He talks about the fact that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Uh, but to, the, to those who are saved, it's the power of God. So he's really highlighting the fact that it is not the preacher who should be the focus. It's not the preacher who anybody should be excited about. They should be excited because they've heard the gospel and they've heard Christ and they've seen Jesus. And that's the thing that they've been blessed by. And it is a sign of deep sickness when we get attached to the person who's preaching. Um, that's actually why for me, it's healthy for me to go away. It's healthy for me to go away for a few weeks in the middle of the summer and for you to have other people preaching because you guys need to be reminded that, yeah, I preach a lot here, but I'm not the centerpiece. And not that any of you were ever tempted to think that, but you need to see it. And I need to be reminded of it. (laughs) I need to be reminded of it uh, because God forbid I ever convince myself that somebody came here to hear me preach. What What an ugly thing for me to believe in my heart. And so I love time off, if nothing else, to be reminded of that. Also, I got to go to other churches and see how they do it. And then I got to come back here and be really thankful for you all. <laughs> um, so that's Paul's, Paul's solution as he says, let there be no division among you. He says, be of the same mind, be of the same judgment. He's getting to the core of their division because what are they doing? They're depending on worldly wisdom. Um, divisions are a worldly reality. Uh, partisanship is a worldly thing. Pragmatism and a party spirit. These are all part of this age. This is the way the people of this world deal with things. And he says, when you do that, you're not depending on God's wisdom. You need to apply God's wisdom. And that's what he's pushing them towards. And so there's, there's really great wisdom here from, from Paul. Again, this is transcendently helpful, whether you live in, first, in, in Corinth in the first century, or whether you live in the Portland area in the 21st century. Um, This is still extremely relevant. Um, uh, Paul is getting at something different than just the symptoms. He's trying to get to the cause of the symptoms. Um, So here's one of the big big problems. You've got the divisions in the church. That's how he addresses that. But then you have this, this problem of sexual immorality in the church. And he gets really specific and it's a kind of sexual immorality that like, I think even the 21st century, like we are in a very permissive society, but we hear what's going on. And I think we kind of our noses turn, right? Because what is happening? Someone has his father's wife. Uh, he says, this is something that isn't even done among the Gentiles even. And look, I've got a book called from sin, from shame to sin by Kyle Harper I've been reading it now, and it is a hard book to read because he is basically going through the sexual uh, mores of the Roman world. And uh, tell you what, there's some, I thought that um, it made me feel like such a prude. It made me feel like such a prude reading it because he's going through the poetry of the Roman people and of the Greeks. And one of the things you see is all bets are off. Basically, Consent isn't even really all that important. And it is not unusual for men to have children in the Roman world. Um, in fact, there's, it's, I, could get, I could get more specific. It's disgusting. And here's the reason why, in part, you and I, when we hear of this sort of behavior, such as someone has his father's wife, or when we hear about the Romans having just absolutely all bets are off uh, sexual practices, the reason we have that response is because Christianity took hold and because Christianity ended up becoming a big part of the way that we think about good and evil and human sexuality. 
That's actually one of the things Kyle Harper writes the book for. I can't tell if he's a Christian, but I can definitely tell he's convinced that the early spread of Christianity changed the sexual morality of the Western world. And he is, he's proving it by showing you what they did before, the way men treated their wives before, the way that people acted in public before, the sort of things that even a public figure could do and totally get away with it before Christianity. And once Christianity takes hold, suddenly that stuff is not tolerated. Suddenly that stuff is either mocked or people get thrown in prison or worse happens to them when they start practicing those things. And he, he wants you, he's making the case that it's Christianity that did that. Well, here we have Paul in a church where guess what they're acting like? Romans. They are sexually acting like Romans. This guy has his father's wife. And, he, and then the problem is, and the, to, to cap it all off for Paul, the problem is not just a man has his father's wife, but then he says they're proud of it. They're proud of it. They're proud of the... They're basically flaunting God's grace is the way it seems to be. And he says, your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. Um, He says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then he actually says, so then he says something here. He says, for though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit as if, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Uh, What is he going to call for to deal with the sexual immorality of these people who are in the church? He says, you got to remove them from the church. You actually have to deal with the fact that, that this person needs to be removed from your gathering. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Um, he's describing something Jesus describes in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, you know what? If somebody won't repent, take it to the church. And if he, and, and if he still won't repent, then remove him from your company and treat him like a Gentile. Treat him like a tax collector. And Paul is telling them to do that in this case here. Um, and so this is one of the things about the church is that it is a place where invitations take place. But it's also a place where sin gets taken seriously. And when you don't take it seriously, then it stains the whole, the whole group and it stains Christ and it makes Christ look bad. And that's one of the problems that Paul has here. He says, your boasting is not good. And then he says, uh, do, your boasting is not good. Do you not know the little lump leavens the whole lump? So his point is the rest of the church is going to be impacted by this man's behavior if it's tolerated. And it, it can't be. It has to be addressed. And so he says, don't associate uh, clean out the old leaven. Um, uh, and then again, he tells him, stop being part of the old age. Stop being part of that old Roman way of sexually living. Instead, he says, you are different people right now. You better act like it. And so that's how he addresses that. And you could tell that this is really on his mind, but he didn't want to lead with it. <laughs> right? So let's stick it in the middle of the letter and then let's get past that one. Um, he also talks about the issues of divorce and remarriage. Um, I just, you read through this book and you're like, nothing's new. Nothing's new. Nothing here is, this reads like a fresh letter, right? This, this reads like something that really still connects with us today. Um, divorce has always been uh, something that took place. The Corinthians were not thinking well about sex and they certainly weren't thinking well about their marriage. 
What do you have going on in 1 Corinthians 7? Well, for one thing, you have unmarried people having sex. The old-fashioned word for that is fornication. Um, Paul makes clear this is definitely a sin. Uh, When I teach this class for the college students, I always like to make sure to tell them having sex outside of marriage is an unbiblical practice. And that's how the Corinthians were living. And you just look at these students and you just you just look them each in the eye because, you know, it makes them feel really bad. (laughs) Because no one else is telling them this. No one else is telling them this. Somebody has to. So that's right now. So what's Paul's solution? What's Paul's solution to the issue of divorce, the issue of, of marriage? Well, he says, look, there's a goodness of marriage. Marriage is a good, and it's something that should be pursued, something that should be appreciated. He says, he says if you burn with passion, then he says, you should be married. And he says, if you're single and you can't stand it, you should look for a spouse, you should get married. Um, But Paul also recognizes divorce is sometimes necessary in limited circumstances. You know, it's like when Jesus was asked about divorce and he said, look, divorce exists because you guys have hard hearts. If if people weren't sinners, divorce wouldn't exist. Uh, If Adam and Eve had never taken the fruit, then you wouldn't even have a provision for divorce because they would have stayed together forever, right? Um, But we live in a fallen world and the scripture recognizes that. And so it's written as a realistic document. And so he says, sometimes it's necessary Uh, In limited circumstances, he says the innocent party in verses 12 to 15. I'll just read it. Um, He says to the rest, I say that if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So right away, what's happening? He's making sure that believers don't use the unbelief of their spouse as an excuse for divorce. He says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It is a common law institution in the sense that all human beings have marriage, Christian or non-Christian. Marriage is a real thing that really exists that even unbelievers have and enjoy and practice. So he says that you should, you are permitted to to be remarried if um, the innocent party is permitted to remarry if he or she is abandoned. So if you keep going, it says the unbelieving, um, see, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So I think what Paul is, is saying there is that if you're, if you're a believer and your unbelieving spouse leaves, you're, you're not, your duty is not to stay forever single. He's not saying you, you're required to be perpetually single. Rather, you are permitted to remarry uh, only in the Lord. So he makes sure to really highlight that. Um, if you do remarry, you need to be married to somebody who is a believer. Um, and then Paul talks about singleness. And for me, as a young man, this was a really helpful section of scripture, right? Uh, when Aaron first met me, uh, I told her, I said, I think I'm called to live like a monk, is what I told her. Now, as a young man, I was like 19 and, or 18, and uh, I wasn't going to make a very good monk. But um, I at least had that aspiration. I was going to be like Paul, right? I was going to be like Paul. Paul says, I wish that everybody could be free from concerns. You find at the end of chapter 7, this statement that he makes. He says, um, uh, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Um, for if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have the worldly trouble, have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. 
And so um, this is just worth thinking about. When you're married, you've got responsibilities, right? You've got things you have to take care of. Um, I could have been out in the streets of, of Portland talking to people downtown and evangelizing, but you know what I was doing yesterday? I was installing sconces on the front of my house. Um, I, I'm, I'm learning how to do electrical work, apparently. Um, these are just the sort of things that you do that Paul says, look, I would love if you weren't married. Um, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, how to install sconces on the front of his house. And he says his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And then he says, um, he says, look, he who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. And so Paul is really extolling singleness if you're gifted for it, right? If you're gifted for it and, and you can live without being married, then he says, go for it. Please do. You be useful to the Lord. Um, but there's also a way of, of blessing the kingdom of God by making babies and replicating and going out into the world and being fruitful and multiplying. That is also a work of God that matters as well. So I would, I would just extol you whatever place you find yourself in life, whether you've got a houseful that's keeping you busy or whether you find yourself single or whether you find yourself uh, married. There's no kids, but you've got a spouse to take care of. Wherever it is that you are, make sure that you're being useful to the Lord and being faithful to your calling wherever you are. Um, <clears throat> now, if you go to chapter 11, he has a conversation about men's and women's roles. Um, really popular stuff in the 21st century. Um, what's going on in chapter 11? So women are uh, praying in church with their heads uncovered. Boy, this will be a really easy subject, right? Um, in their culture, this was a huge issue. Um, Paul says women should have their heads covered because it's a matter of dishonor. And this is unacceptable. Now, why does Paul insist on head coverings? Is Paul creating a once-for-all rule that all people everywhere are then supposed to be practicing? Well, if you look at the culture of the first century, the culture of the first century said that a woman's head, if it's uncovered, is a shameful thing. It means that you were, think of it like this, if you left your head uncovered, it meant that you were a carefree, free-spirited, I'm sort of available to anybody that wants me kind of a person. Um, that's sort of the message that's being, that's being bandied about. Kyle Harper talks about this in his book. Again, I appreciate the book because he's not writing it for Christians. It's a scholarly book written for other people. And he talks about the message that is sent by a woman's head being uncovered in the Roman context. And so what is it then about the covered head? The covered head means chastity. It means decency. It means I'm not available. An uncovered head means that you're immodest and you're sexually available. I would just say this. I live, I've lived in lots of cities, lots of places, and I, in the American context, uncovered head doesn't mean that, at least not here. Um, but the question is, is, God, is Paul creating a new law here? Is he creating a new universal law that women are now to cover their heads? Well, the Old Testament has no laws requiring head covering. You can look through the entire Old Testament. You will find yourself at a loss to find any discussion of women covering their heads the law of God never requires men to uncover their heads or for women to cover their heads. 
And so here's the interesting question, and I think it, it sort of helps us to see a little bit through some of the fog that comes from a text like this. In 1 Corinthians, if Paul is stating a new law that is persistent and true for all time, and not just a response to a cultural problem in a church like Corinth, if that's not what's going on here, then Paul is adding to the law and he is making something to be sin that would not have been sin before. Are you following that? It was a long sentence. (laughs) So the question is, is Paul creating a new law where he is telling women to do something they never had to do before, but they do now from here on out in all the churches? One of the things we recognize in scripture is that not even Jesus created new laws. Jesus was not in the business of creating new burdens. What did he do though? He lived in light of the written law. He lived in light of the law. He kept the law. He never threw away the law. He never discarded the law, but he didn't make new laws. He didn't make new laws. His work was spent taking the law as it existed and illuminating him and and maybe blowing the dust off of it, especially if the Pharisees had been really messing with it for a long time. So, So he didn't create new laws. So women in Corinth are praying with their heads uncovered. This would have been culturally scandalous. And to put it very simply, it would be scandalous and it would be disruptive to the church's worship. You can imagine having women in the church who are sending that message to every man in the building. Yeah, Larry. What are you doing verse 10? Uh, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Actually, I'll get to it. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That doesn't sound cultural. Uh, I don't know what verse 10 means. Thank you. I need more time. It's an overview, Larry. It's an overview. This is a. Okay, I've been my point. But I, wa- I do want you to notice Paul's solution. Paul's solution to the scandal of women doing this in the church is to embrace marriage roles. So here's what he's saying: the solution is, when a woman wears a head covering, what is she doing? She is showing that she accepts her husband's domestic authority and her God-appointed role in the home. And so in verses 11 and 12, what does Paul do? He says, in fact, I'll read it. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as man was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. So he, he does this interesting thing where he basically says men and women are ontological equals. We both depend on each other. Therefore, there's no sense in which one is greater than the other. Um, and then at the same time, he says they're both functionally different. So we are ontologically similar. Ontologically means in their person, uh, not in relation to our relationship between each other, but simply we are both of equal value before God. We depend on each other or we wouldn't exist. But then he says there we are functionally different. He says it is it is right for the husband to be the head of the wife and it's right for the wife to submit to the husband. And so when when wives submit to their husband's headship, what are they doing? They're following the example of Jesus because in his incarnation, what does he do? He lives his whole life submitting to the father. And so to cover your head today isn't keeping the spirit of what Paul said. 
um, the command here is not for women in all cultures, all times, all places to wear head coverings. It's for women in all places, all times, and all cultures to submit to their husbands and recognize that in marriage there are different roles and for them to be submissive to their husbands. Still not popular in the 21st century. I will grant you that. Um, The command here is for the Christian home to be structured according to God's intentional design with the husband submitting to God and loving his wife and with the wife submitting to her husband and loving her husband. So Paul's solution is still not palatable today, but it's not, it's deeper than just the practice of wearing a head covering. Um, Paul appeals to the created order here too. So this is how God created men and women to relate as husband and wife. Now that doesn't mean uh, that it's, so I've kind of, I'm kind of drilling this down, but I'm kind of summarizing too. It doesn't mean it's sin for a woman to cover her head, all right? It doesn't mean that if a woman covers her head in worship that there's something wrong. Um, it's, I think nearly every Reformed church I've ever worshiped in, there have been women who felt they should cover their head in worship, and I don't think anyone ever gave them grief. Um, they felt they should do it. Um, but I think the real application of what Paul has here is for the wife not to usurp her authority and for her to recognize and live out the headship of her husband. And of course, the husband to recognize and live under the headship of Christ in a self-sacrificial way. Uh, husbands can make it very easy for their wives to submit and they can make it very hard for their wives to submit. Uh, being a good leader has a way of making people willing to follow your leadership and being a rough leader and a hard leader who's always appealing to your authority. That has a way of, of they'll, they, they, she should still do it, but but you're making life very difficult for your wife. Um, So not a popular solution. Uh, Even right now, if you go out to an evangelical church and you say men and women are supposed to live differently and do different things and have different roles, uh, people start to pick up stones. Uh, Even if you go to like a a Christian church, it's like that. So um, hopefully this doesn't sound, hopefully is this helpful at all? Yes. I think, I think it goes deeper than just what you do with your body and how you dress. Sometimes what you dress, how you dress actually says something about you, right? Um, in our culture today, there are ways that you could dress in church that definitely would send the wrong message. And I actually think that could be another application of what Paul is saying here. So, um, Also, I want you to just know what Paul is saying also. He's not saying that women can't, can't have a career of their own. They, they can't have their own life. They can't have their own relationships. I mean, think back to the Proverbs 31 women. And I've, by the way, I've learned that nearly universally every Christian woman hates that Proverbs 31 woman. <laughs> so don't hang out too long with Proverbs 31 woman. But Proverbs 31 woman, she works outside the home. And she makes money for her family. And she's busy. Like, and so uh, I would just say we need to be very careful that we don't slip into like a 1950s version of the roles of, of husbands and wives. Um, I think that life's more complicated than that. I think Paul seems to recognize, and I think scripture seems to recognize that. Um, Paul is saying, though, when it comes to marriage, there's a God-ordained structure and that we can deny, but we do so to our harm. I think he's saying the home gets hurt. I think he's even saying that it affects the church and the church gets hurt. Um, when we talk about headship also, though, um, whatever he wants, uh, Paul is not saying that a husband, because he is the head, gets to do whatever he wants to a woman. Uh, headship should never be interpreted as men saying, I'm the head, and then doing whatever they want to their wife. Never excusing abuse. Never excusing mistreatment. Never giving a man a blank check in the marriage. 
Uh, men are to be the head like Jesus is the head. And how is Jesus the head? Jesus loves his church. He never abuses his church. Jesus never tears down his church. Jesus never uses his church like an object. And neither should husbands. And so what does the husband have? He's got a responsibility to give of himself endlessly and put his wife before himself just like Jesus does. Um, He has a responsibility to pour himself out and to be the sort of man that a wife would willingly follow to the ends of the earth because she trusts him and she knows that he loves her endlessly. Um, So this is a Christian understanding of marriage and headship. Now, again, not popular, but when you understand it rightly, this is something that I think women welcome. In my experience, women welcome this. They welcome the definitions of things. They welcome having things laid out and being told this is what we're supposed to be, right? It's not 1950s Mad Men, right? It's not like a cartoonish vision of the 50s where women were things to serve the purpose of their husbands and other men. I know it probably wasn't like that in the 50s, but we're not, it's not the caricature of that either. Um, that's not what Paul had in mind. He's also not trying to send us back to Mayberry. He wants us to go much further back than that. So... <laughs> Um, I want to say a few things about 2 Corinthians. You're going to be disappointed. I don't have as much to say about 2 Corinthians. Um, 2 Corinthians is... So first of all, 2 Corinthians is not as riddled throughout with controversy as 1 Corinthians is. Um, It's a little bit of a breath of fresh air compared to 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians is a hard letter, is what Paul calls it at the very beginning. He says, I know I wrote that hard letter to you. Um, and he, he realized that there's a need for him to follow up, right? It, it was written with the design of assuring the people in Corinth, yes, I wrote that hard letter to you, and I had to address all that really uncomfortable stuff that I didn't want to talk about. I wanted to send you only good things, and instead I needed to talk about hard things. And so this is his follow-up. This is him saying, I love you people. I love you guys. And I don't want you to just have your last word from me be this hard letter. And so he's also got to not only assure them of his love, but a a deal with opponents, right? Because people keep following Paul everywhere he goes. Their Judaizers follow him. Other teachers follow him. and, And they very much undermine the gospel that he lays down. And he realizes frequently, I have to go back. I have to talk to them again. Well, he can't go back to Corinth yet. And so he writes them a letter. And his opponents have two charges to make against Paul. They, they come behind Paul and they basically go, you know, Corinthians, you guys really listen to all that stuff that Paul said. But Paul, well, first of all, he's, they said Paul's message was insufficient. And, and second of all, they say that his ministry was weak. That guy was weak. Didn't you see how much he suffered? And because of that, they think there's something about that that undercuts the ministry of Paul. Um, In some ways, they seem to have seen Paul's suffering as a sign that his ministry wasn't real. Um, You can almost imagine that being sort of like the prosperity preachers today, right? You need to have a full life. You need to have your best life now. And if somebody's not living their best life now, maybe something's wrong with them. Maybe they're not faithful. Maybe they don't really believe the gospel. Maybe they're not really proclaiming the gospel. Um, Wouldn't God treat him well if he was really faithful. And so they're calling him into question because of his weakness. Also think of it like this. And you saw this in first Corinthians. They have this worldly mindset that basically says, Hey, let's do things the world's way. Let's do things in strength, the way the world does things. And here they are. And it's almost like it's resurfacing again. Like the, the, the Corinthians are just enamored with strength, with evidence of success, obvious triumph. That's what they're looking for. And Paul responds that that life under the cross doesn't work that way. 
He says, we live under the cross. Weakness is a crucial part of God's plan in advancing God's glory. I think it was the last book J.I. Packer wrote. I could be mistaken. Maybe he did write something else later. But before he died, he wrote a book called Weakness is the Way. Have any of you read Weakness is the Way? I would just recommend it. It is a really good book just for any Christian to read. For me as a preacher, really helpful, a blessing to read as well. Um, It's called Weakness is the Way. And he's building on what Paul's doing here. Um, You know what he says? The new covenant age of God's people is not all triumph and glory. He's, He's saying suffering and trials are a part of God's plan so that everybody knows God's strength and that it's not our strength. And he's, he's like, if we were all strong, if we were all capable, if we were all great, then everybody would think the gospel was spreading because we were clever. And he's, he's like, I didn't come with fancy words. I came with sim, uh, simple words. I came with suffering. And somehow the gospel still thrived. That's a sign that the gospel is really being preached. That there was no human strength behind it. <coughs> And so Christians live in two ages, right? We live in the present age and and it's got suffering and it's got sorrow and it's got sickness and it's got (coughs) coughs in the middle of your Sunday school lesson. And we live in the age to come. And the age to come is an age of glory and it's an age of, of greatness. And it shines through all the hurt and all the pain and all the weakness so that even though Paul is weak and even though he's suffering, people still see the glory of Christ. That's the point. And so Paul basically looks at their perspective and he says, you need to have God's perspective. You need to see that human cleverness is not how this spreads. It spreads through Jesus and it spreads through the cross. And the cross is an object of suffering, not of triumph. Um, So that's what he wants them to know. So one of the things you see with these two books, though, is that they address Christians in a lot of ways where their time is very different from our time. Their place is very different than the place where we live. But think of all the overlap. There's all this sexual confusion in the, Roman, in, the, for, in the Corinthian church. And you better believe that there is sexual confusion in the day that we live in as well. Um, he's living in a day where divorce is common and needs to be addressed. So do we. We still live in an age where people expect life to go smoothly and easily and where we easily get frustrated when life doesn't go smoothly and easily. Um, And so can't you see that these books are super relevant to us? These are not triumphant books. These are actually letters written to messed up churches that are in messed up situations. And if you are in a church where sometimes you notice that things aren't quite right, then you should get in line behind the Corinthians because we all, to one degree or another, are living in this in-between time. So I find the book an encouragement, and I do not find it to be a foreign land. When I read this book, I go, wow, this is, this is super relevant. This is super relevant to us. Um, let me pray, and uh, it's exactly time for us to get out. And then I'll stick around, and you can ask me questions. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this letter to this messed up church. Thank you for showing us that you love churches even when they have deep problems. I pray that you would keep us from being discouraged by the reality that churches have problems and churches have mortals in them and churches have sinners in them. And I pray that you would help for us to live by your strength and your wisdom and not by human strength and wisdom and cunning. Help us not to rely upon our own cleverness or our smarts or our genius 
if it even exists, instead help for us, O God, to look to Christ and depend on him and to walk under the shadow of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.